We'll explain Riley's Romans 12 reading in just a minute, but if you have your Bibles, turn to Esther chapter 3. We're going to spend our time tonight walking through Esther chapter 3. We try to make it a tradition on Sunday nights in the fall to walk through a Bible life, and so this year we're walking through the life of Esther, uh, one of many people's favorite lives in all the Bible, and I hope you're enjoying the study. I'm enjoying it so far. Here's what we've seen. We're seeing, we're back in the Persian Empire of the 400s BC, and King Ahasuerus uh, got drunk at a big feast, told his, sent word to have his wife come in and show off her beauty, and she said no. So he said, that's it, we're finding a new queen. Doesn't look much like God is doing anything here. This looks like people acting sinfully and silly, uh, but God is going to use even those bad events to bring together exactly what his people needed. And then last week we were in Esther chapter 2, where Esther, who has been growing up in Susa, spent her whole life in the Persian Empire because God's people had been taken away from Jerusalem years before. Uh, She's growing up and she's beautiful, and so she gets pulled into this search for a new queen, and she's the one that's chosen. And one of the things that we tried to point out that I think chapter 2 highlights, she's a woman of humility. And even though she is being uh, lifted up to very powerful places in the world, uh, she is still who she is, and, uh, and that's something we're going to see throughout this book. And so tonight we're going to get in chapter 3. Um, it's five years later as you get to chapter 3. So Esther has been queen for five years. The only thing that we know has happened from chapter 2 is they had a big banquet in her honor, like a national holiday, remember that, Esther's banquet, Esther's feast. And we also know that Mordecai, uh, her cousin who raised her because her parents had died, Uh, Mordecai has discovered a plot against the king at the end of chapter 2. And he told Esther, who told the king, they found out it was true, and so they wrote it down in the king's chronicles that Mordecai had helped save the king. Um, But that's years have now gone by, the day in and day out of life has happened, and then we get to chapter 3, and I've called tonight Power and Rage. So what we're going to do, walk through the chapter like we always do, some Bible reading together, And then I've got four lessons I hope we take home from a study of Esther chapter 3. Here's how it starts, Esther chapter 3. Haman's promotion. Haman, one of the the books I'm looking at and studying for these lessons, says his name sounds sort of like Hangman, and maybe that'll help you remember which one he is in the story, uh, because that's going to come up again uh, later on. But Haman, uh, he hadn't hadn't appeared anywhere yet in these first two chapters. But all of a sudden... Here in chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1, it says, After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Now we pointed out, the book of Esther tells us where the Jewish feast of Purim came from. And I'm told that every year, Jews gather together on the day of Purim. You'll see it on your calendar. And uh, and even today, they will read through the book of Esther. And it's often a responsive reading of the book of Esther. And whenever Haman's name is read, the the group listening will often boo or hiss or say something like the enemy of the Jews. I'm not asking you to boo tonight. Uh, the, The last thing we need is to start the habit of booing in the sermons here at Great Oaks Church of Christ. But, but, what, but maybe, maybe you can think it in the back of your mind. Because that's what they would do. They, they, they read this, and, and there's a, 
there's a, there's a boo because this is the bad guy. This is the guy who wants, you're going to see in this chapter, he's the power and rage behind the title of tonight's lesson. But all we know at this point is he's pretty important. And the king has promoted him above everybody else, above all the other princes you see there in verse 1. It sounds like what happened to Daniel a, a few decades earlier. When, Dan, when the Babylonian Empire was, was still in power and they're promoting Daniel above all the other princes, he was going to be the highest one. Uh, somehow Haman has risen to those same heights. We don't know what he's done well. We don't know why the king loves him. But he is going to be the second in charge of the most powerful empire in the world. And so he is promoted here. Uh, I want to point out before we go to this next section, I've underlined here his background. You might have noticed the hard words to read there. But Haman the Agagite, who is, what is an Agagite? Let's, let's go back for just a minute, because I think this is an important part of what happens here in Esther. Um, go all the way back to the time of the kings. The very first king, King Saul, around 1040 B.C., so we're talking almost 600 years earlier. And so King Saul has been given a job by God, and it goes even further back why God gives him this job. When the Israelites left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, going toward the Promised Land, there were people called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites attacked them. They didn't just attack them, they, they attacked from, from the rear of the people as they were marching. They attacked the weak and the, and the hurting and, the, and those that couldn't keep up. And so God said, what they've done is wrong. And knowing where this people's lives were going to lead, he gives Saul a job here. And we'll wrestle with this for just a second. So Samuel comes to Saul and says, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the word of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek. And utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Today we read passages like that and we we struggle with it. We say, why would God say something like that? Isn't God all good? I believe he is. Isn't God all just? Doesn't he know what's right and wrong? And I, I believe he does. And so for God to give a command like this, God knows something. God knows something you and I don't know. That He can see from all eternity and and, and from a, a perspective well above history to see that this group of people... Their children are going the wrong way. They're, they're just going to be lost as the generations come and go. The next generation is just going to be as lost as the previous one. And this needs to end right here. God doesn't love things like this. In fact, Ezekiel 33:11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God, God gets no joy from the wicked dying. He wants all of us to turn back to him. I didn't put up here 1 Timothy 2, 4, but I probably should have, where it says God wants all men to be saved. God wants people to be saved even more than you and I do. And so for God to tell Saul, we, it is just and right to end the Amalekites. God knows something about faith, the way they're going to 
that they're not going to be saved, that they're not going to be changed, that future generations won't be changed. God knows something. He calls on us to trust Him. But Saul struggled with that too. And so Saul, when he's supposed to wipe out the Amalekites from, from divine justice that only God could know, that we could never know, but God from His place of seeing all history knew, Saul instead captures Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So he does some of it, but he doesn't kill Agag, and he doesn't kill the best of the sheep in verse 9, or the oxen, or the fatlings, or the lambs. He was not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, they destroyed those things. So Saul doesn't fully do what God wants him to do. Now Samuel comes in and actually kills King Agag. But it sounds like, if we understand it right, Part of Saul not fulfilling this command meant that a lot of Agag's family still lived. And then you come back to Esther 3 and someone way down the line is going to want to kill all of God's people. Maybe God knew something. Maybe God knew way back when Saul was king, this is what needs to happen because there's something far worse down the line that if we can obey here, that this won't happen. Now God's going to step in again. But... It just reminds us, when God says something, He knows what He's talking about. And even though we sometimes wrestle with it in our limited earthly perspective, if we'll trust the God who is always good and who is always just and who loves people even more than we love them, God knows what He's talking about. So here Saul did not keep his order, and so let me give you the blank if you're keeping the outline with us. Haman comes from the Amalekites, who, who should have been ended years ago. We've been studying Jeremiah in, uh, in my Bible classes this quarter, and so Jeremiah's been on my mind a lot. And, and, and God speaks to a false prophet named Hananiah in Jeremiah 28. He says, you're hurting yourself and others. I'm going to remove you from the earth. Just an interesting way from God's perspective to think about it. That's what was supposed to happen to the evil people of the Amalekites, and it didn't. And now here is Haman, uh, an Amalekite, um, who is now in charge all right, so it keeps going in chapter 3. Mordecai now refuses to bow. So Haman is, is in charge. He's, he's been raised to a place of power. Mordecai, who, if you remember, comes from the family of Saul. How ironic that Saul's family member is now here, and the Amalekites, Agag's family member, is now here, and there's going to be another conflict between them. Mordecai is the first cousin of Esther. He works for the king in the city, and he refuses to bow. So let's read verses 2 through 4. It says, All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. So that's part of the command. We're elevating Haman. Everyone should bow down everywhere he goes. You bow down before Haman. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? This had to stand out, didn't it? It's not something you can hide very well when everyone else bows down and you don't bow down. That sticks out to people. And so I guess he's got friends or co-workers who are coming up and saying, why, why are you doing this? Like the king has said, bow down to Haman. Why are you not bowing down to Haman? Verse 4, Now it was that when they had spoken daily to him, 
and they would not listen to them. So over and over, Mordecai, what are you doing? You're supposed to bow down to Haman. They told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So it tells the reason. He said to them, I'm a Jew. And I think this is one of those places where Esther, the book of Esther, could have easily included the name of God. I think it's intentionally left the name of God out to show again how God is working behind the scenes. But all it says is, I'm a Jew. I, I don't bow down to other people. I think what's going on here is we're only supposed to bow to God. That, that God is the only one who, who we honor and who we treat as God. And so Mordecai has a, has a spiritual reason for this, a, a godly reason. I'm not going to bow down to Mordecai. Keep in mind, though, last week, do you remember what Mordecai had told Esther not to do when she was meeting the king and, and going through this process? Remember he said, don't tell the people that you're a Jew. As if it would hold her back. He was afraid it would hold her back in some way in life or put her in danger. But now Mordecai, as he sees this, this life challenge put in front of him where you're supposed to bow down to this man, Mordecai has some boldness rising up inside of him. And he says, I follow God. I don't bow down to people. And so he just stands. The, the, Haman comes by, everybody bows down, and he just stands there. I, I imagine, and maybe I'm, I'm projecting myself, I guess, onto Mordecai here. I imagine the first time I do that, maybe my face turning red, or maybe a little sweat breaking out of my brow. I don't know if he felt any of that. But, but he just stands and refuses to bow. But you notice they go to Haman and say, Haman, is this a good reason? Because Mordecai is not bowing and he says it's because he's a Jew. Is that all right? Like, is that, can we just ignore the king's command if we're Jews? So Haman gets really angry. Haman's rage is what I've called this next verse. I suppose if Haman were a, a better person, he might have said, well, this is his religious conviction. If he doesn't bow to me, it's okay. You know, I, I'm, I'm not here for me. I'm here to serve the people. You know, maybe, maybe that could have been an acceptable response. He's got, he's got religious convictions between him and his God from, from, Morde, from Haman's perspective. And so let, let's, let's not get upset. That's not the way Haman handles this. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. How dare he? How dare he disrespect me? I've been put in charge of this kingdom, and the king has said, you bow down to me. How dare you stand there? And so I guess he saw it daily as he's going back and forth because they're talking to, to Mordecai every day about this. And so now he's noticing. This guy refuses to bow down, and it fills him with rage. So then Haman has a plan to kill all the Jews. You say, wow, that escalated really quickly. And it did, it did. Because I guess Mordecai knows what he's risking. Haman's in charge. Like Mordecai's got to know, if I don't bow down, this could cost me my life. I mean, Haman can do some things. He's been handed second in charge of the kingdom. Could at least cost me my job. Could, the king could at least say, uh, Mordecai, you're not welcome here anymore. Go, go back to wherever you want to live, but you're not serving me because I give orders and you're not following them. He has to know what it's risking him. I don't know if he had any conception that it could become this. Because verse 6 says, talking about Haman, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. 
Therefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Wow, what a, what a wicked person. Who, who not only says, that guy, I'm upset at him, I want to get rid of all his people. Not just Mordecai, but all of his people should be killed. And so in the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, per that is the lot. Now the feast Purim comes from this verse. Because the lot, which, which is their version sort of of dice to us, like, like casting the lots. You'll see that a lot in Scripture. And so they had their own versions of this. And so the way he decided to do it from this verse is, we're gonna, I'm going to have someone come, a priest of whatever God he's following, have someone come cast the lot, and whatever the lot says, that will be the day that we're going to kill the Jews. So Because that, that's what is described here. So per, that is the lot, was cast before Haman. So since it says it was cast before Haman, that's why I'm picturing in my mind like a priest of some you know, fake God coming in and casting the lot every day from day to day and month to month until the 12th month. So, so the lot lands on the 12th month. Do you notice, notice which month we started in? The first month. Um, someone pointed out, one of the books I've been looking at, what Haman may not have known was Proverbs 16, 33 where it says the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And Esther 3 does not say that God made the lot do what He wanted, but do you notice it's about as far away as it could possibly be from Haman's plan. It landed 11 months later as the lot's cast every day. It's not this one, it's not this one, it just keeps on going until we get 11 months out. God is giving time for His plan to come together to save his people. So even here, perhaps, you see, you see God behind the scenes um, moving the decision of the lot. But then this is what he does. So he, he's cast his lot, so I guess he thinks he's bringing the gods into it to help him pick his day, to get revenge. And then he goes to the king. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. I'll pause there for a second. That's not a bad reputation to have to me. Um, in fact, I hope that people can look at Christians and, and maybe even not like it like Haman did, but I hope they can look at us and say, these people are following different laws, uh, better laws. I hope we follow the laws of the land. I think that's what we're called to do. But we're, we're called to follow higher laws as well. And, and, and however patriotic you are, um, I consider myself a patriotic person. Uh, my dad's retired army. There's a flag hanging outside our house right now. I'm about as patriotic as you're going to find. But, but I, think, uh, I think I serve a higher kingdom. And I think that, that, that the laws I'm trying to live by are not just whatever does our country decide the rights and wrongs are. And I, and I hope we're all that way. And so that's what he's saying about the Jews. They're following different laws. They're, they're, not, they're not just reading your stuff and saying that's what to do. And again, that's because Mordecai is not bowing down. So he says, if it is pleasing to the king. Um, 
You would like to think the king would hear this differently. But if it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Wow. You would wish there was a ruler here who would say, Haman, that's not, that's not right. We can handle this differently. But we've already seen King Ahasuerus is not the wisest person in the world. He, just because you're king doesn't mean you, you know what you're doing. And, and so uh, we've seen him act silly already. And so, but someone pointed out, again, one of the books said, sounds like Haman knows which buttons to push. Uh, he's, he's flattering him. You don't want people who aren't following your laws. He, he's worried about money. I'll, I'll pay for it. I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver to help kill these people who are against you, king. They're not listening to you. And so he's... Obviously terrible ulterior motives, but the king listens to it. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours. I'll just pay for it. And the people also, to do with them as you please. So Haman has gotten his law passed to kill the Jews in the 12th month on the 13th day. The way this chapter ends, the king's men send out the order. And so they've, they've made this law. They're going to follow this law. Uh, he's convinced the king to go with it. And here they send it out. Let's read the last few verses. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the, to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language. Remember, the Persian Empire covers all sorts of languages and peoples. Everyone's going to get their own language. Written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. And then notice verse 15. The couriers went out, impelled by the king's command, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa, the capital, and while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. The chapter ends with the king and Haman sitting down, toasting each other, maybe toasting the security of the kingdom, the, how, how well we're taking care of all these terrible people and how we're solving problems, while outside everybody's confused. What is, what is happening? What, why this type of order? And of course the Jews most of all. This is probably the, the biggest threat to God's people, um, perhaps in, in the history of God's people. Because the Persian Empire covers everything. Remember the timeline as we've looked at, I've got the stars here by the book of Esther in the 400s B.C. And so there's already been that one big wave of people that went back to Jerusalem. 50,000 of them, maybe more have gone since then. And they've rebuilt the temple. And so you might think, well, there's at least 50,000 safe, right? Well, no, the Persian Empire covers all of it. 
And so even if you're, if you're back in Jerusalem, back over here on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea, if you're in Israel, that's part of the Persian Empire too. And if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the nations around Jerusalem, they'd be more than happy. To, to have this day that says we can get back at the Jews and get rid of the people. They're trying to stop them from building the temple to begin with. And so the Jews are not going to be safe anywhere. And I don't know if Haman was thinking maybe they'll just leave the Persian Empire somehow or, or, or what, but this is, a, this is an existential threat to God's people. And we're going to see how God takes care of all that starting next week. Here's what I want us to take from tonight. Four things that I hope we take home. Number one, when God says something, trust Him. When God says, Saul, I want you to kill the Amalekites, trust Him. This doesn't happen if Saul fulfills that command. There's no existential threat. There, there's no all the Jews are going to be killed. God knew something and, and God is, is blessing us with these peaks behind the curtain to let us see that even in the hard things, even in the things where we say, I just don't know. Like, like really? Why, why are we doing it that way? God knows what He's doing. And there's commands today in, in the Christian faith. Um, sometimes some of the ones that, that people uh, debate about and get frustrated with are some of God's uh, commands for, for how He wants us to handle ourselves sexually. Uh, God wants a husband and a wife to be together for life and for the sexual relationship to only be in that relationship and anything else. And sometimes people from the outside say, I don't understand. God knows what He's doing. Trust it. Trust it. Follow it. Don't, don't do anything outside of what God has commanded. God knows what He's talking about. The thing, ways the church does things. The, way, the ways the church worships. Ways the church organizes. Sometimes people say, you know, maybe we, can, maybe we can do even better if we just change some of these. God knows what He's doing. And so if we will really adopt Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 into our lives, this is such a big part of our faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Just trust God. Sometimes we're like the... The kids talking to their parents came up in our Bible class this morning. Sometimes it's like the kids talking to their parents who say, why, why? If you'll explain to me why, then I'll do it. God doesn't always explain why. Sometimes God just says, here's the way to do it. And if you'll trust Him, you'll find out He knows what He's doing. He'll make your path straight. If you decide, you know, maybe God's not taking care of me. I'm going to do it my own way. You're going to find out that God really didn't know what He was doing. And Saul found that out in the whole Haman episode comes because they didn't listen to God hundreds of years before. Number two, sometimes we must refuse to bow. One thing that uh, I'm thankful for, I feel like I hear more and more Christians emphasizing the, the biblical idea of spiritual boldness today. And I think that's good because I think a lot of Christians worry that maybe for too long, we've just sort of drifted with culture. And when culture said that something's good, we said, okay, that's good. And when culture said something's bad, we said, okay, it's bad. And not realizing we've, there's a higher law, there, there's, a, there's a wiser law. And, and sometimes, like Mordecai, we have to be willing to say, even if everyone else is bowing down, I'm not going to bow down. I'm not going to be unkind about it. But, but I've got religious convictions that I'm going to stand on. 
And Satan's going to tempt us in that. He's going to say, well, if, if, you, if you don't bow down, you're going to fall behind. Or your kids are going to fall behind. If, if you put God first in everything, you're going to stand out. People aren't going to like you. They're going to think you're strange. Uh, he's going to give you all sorts of reasons. He's give you a million reasons just to go ahead and bow down like everybody else. But sometimes, like Mordecai, we've got to be willing to stand. And in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I urge you, brethren. I, I urge, he doesn't just say it. He says, I, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Give your, give your whole lives to God. Not just your Sundays, not just your Sunday mornings, not, not just when you're with the church. Give your, give your whole lives to God, which is acceptable to God. Your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. God has always known that's a danger. He's always known we're going to be tempted to conform. Just do what everybody else does. Just follow along. Come on, this is what we do. This is how we act. This is what we say. We, we serve a different law. We have a higher law. He says, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As I was reading this week, one of my sources is called uh, You Were Made for This Moment. Good, good book on the, the book of Esther. And he said there's a well-known picture from 1936. I didn't know the picture, so it wasn't well-known to me. It may not be well-known to you. But 1936 in Germany, Hitler, there, there's several pictures of crowds giving the the sign to, to hail Hitler. And this is one of them in 1936 where, where a crowd is hailing Hitler. But if you zoom in, there's one guy. One guy who's, who's not. In fact, you can zoom in even more. I hope you can see the picture. He's, he's, not, he's not giving the sign like everybody else is. In fact, he's got a look of disgust on his face, doesn't he? Somewhere along the way, and, and we know his name, you can look into his story more if you'd like to, August Landmesser is his name. He had already seen enough to know that this is not just patriotism. This is not trying to do what's right. This is, this is evil, and it's wrong. And even though everybody else is hailing Hitler as he passes by, this man decided, I'm just going to stand here. I'm not going to support this. Now, I see the guy behind him sort of talking to the guy next to him. I just wonder, I just wonder if he was noticing. Hey, he's not, he's not doing what everybody else is doing. Now, that, that couldn't have been easy. What would you have done? 1936 Germany, when everybody is saying this is the right thing and we're, we're rising up in strength, would, would you have had the courage to just stand there and say, well, maybe I could just sort of blend in with the crowd. But, but we have to have courage to say, I'm going to do what's right, even if no one else is. Another book I've been reading told the well-known story of an early Christian named Polycarp. He lived a few uh, years after the apostles' time. And he's one of the, the famous martyrdoms, people who were killed for their faith. And it, and it reminded the story of how they bring him in before the Roman governor. And he says, you've been accused of being a Christian. If you denounce it, if you denounce Jesus, we'll let you live. And if you won't, we're going to kill you right here in front of everybody. And, and he said, Jesus has never let me down. How am I going to forsake him in a moment like this? And they killed him. What would you do? Would you think of an excuse? 
Would you think of a way to say it that maybe you might say it but not really say it? Um, Polycarp said, I'm going I'm to stand with Jesus. He's always been there for me. Sometimes we have to be people who refuse to bow. And we come from a long line of faith. People like Mordecai who, who said, I'm not bowing down. People like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a few decades before him. Who, who they'd made the big idol, remember? And Nebuchadnezzar said, when the music plays, you will all bow down to my idol. And they, as Jews, knew, just like Mordecai, we don't bow down to anyone besides God. And so everybody bowed down, and they just stood there. And then the king called them in specifically and said, all right, guys, we're going to play the music just for you three. And you're going to bow down. And if you're not, we're going to throw you in the furnace. And they said, king, you can do what you want to do. We know God can save us if He wants to, but even if He doesn't, we're not bowing down to your statue. We come from a long line of people, people of faith, who have said, even if the world bows down, we, we don't. And I say all that to remind ourselves, we're not supposed to be conformed, and sometimes it's going to feel lonely. <laughs> sometimes it's going to feel lonely when everyone else is following the world. Sometimes even when other people of faith are supposed to be standing with God, and they're not. They're just doing what everybody else is doing. It's going to feel lonely, but we've got to be willing to say, God, I'm with you, and I'm going to trust you. I'm I'm going to trust that if I fall behind for doing the right thing, God, you know what you're doing. If I'm worried my kids are going to fall behind because I'm going to put you first in everything, God, I I trust that you're going to take care of all that. Like Mordecai, let's not bow down. Let's not conform to the world. Let's stand with God. One last verse on this one. I love what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4. He says, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. We don't know, by the way, this was something that happened after the book of Acts. In some way, Paul was put on trial again. He says, nobody stood with me, but look at verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. At the end of that verse, I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Nobody stood with me. But the Lord stood with me. When you stand up for what is right, the real law, God's law, whether it's popular around you or not, God stands with you, even if it feels lonely. Number three, we are tempted to nurse disrespectful slights into sinful anger. It's easy for me to say how evil Haman is and and talk about how with the, the Jewish crowds boo him as they read the book. Haman, Haman had power, and so he was going to use it. But what started it is an emotion many of us are tempted to. Because you've been disrespected. I've felt disrespected before. Probably will again. You will again. And, and sometimes we can just nurse those slights into anger. How dare they? Another of the books I've been uh, looking at, trying to make sure I give credit where credit's due on these things. Charles Swindoll uh, has a book on Esther, and he says, Can I make some suggestions of some of the people who you might be nursing a grudge against in your life? He says, Maybe people like a former spouse or a current spouse, a former preacher, a former roommate, a church that offended you, an organization that took unfair advantage of you, A boss, a coach, someone you revered and trusted who used you or abused you? Do you have someone who's made life difficult for you and has never made it right? And even though they're now out of your life, physically absent, 
The incident in the past is still vivid in your memory, deepening your determination to hold on to them. If such is true, he says, unless I miss my guess here, you're tempted to entertain thoughts like, someday, some way, I'll get back. This nursing of anger, this lingering grudge, this deliberate refusal to forgive festers and grows. I hope we won't give in to that. You will be disrespected. You will be treated unfairly. You will have people that you say it's not right what they're doing, and you'll be right about it. But don't become the people Ephesians 4 is talking about, where he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't just keep holding on to anger. Don't just keep rolling it through your mind. Don't just keep nursing those grudges. He says the devil sees an opportunity. God promises he's going to take care of all that, and that's what number four is all about. Number four, when the wicked celebrate, it's always too soon. (laughs) Chapter three ends with Haman and the king drinking together, perhaps celebrating all that they've accomplished to help preserve the peace and security of the kingdom. Um, But it's evil. And they're celebrating. God's not fooled. What we're going to see in Esther is just a, a microcosm of what God promises the whole story of the world is all going to be about. That even though the wicked and the evil will sometimes be winning and chasing the wrong things and and think that they've got something on God and His people, in the end, God wins. And we want to stand with Him above all things. As God promises in Romans 12, you don't take revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God's got it. Let him take care of it. <coughs> Excuse me, my last verse tonight, before my voice goes out tonight. Jeremiah 15, verse 19. Again, Jeremiah's been on my mind with Bible classes. And uh, Jeremiah's got these sections. Um, a lot of scholars call them Jeremiah's confessions, where he comes before God. He says, God, I'm, I'm hurting. I don't understand And it seems like the bad guys are winning, and they're hurting me. And here in verse 15, this is Jeremiah. He says, You know, O Lord, remember me, take notice of me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Do not, in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake I endure reproach. God, it's for you. I'm trying to stand with you, and they're hurting me because of that. God says in verse 19, If you return, then I will restore you. Before me you will stand. And if you extract the precious from the worth, if you, if you take the good things and ignore the bad things, you will become my spokesman. Look at the last line here. They, for their part, may turn to you. But as for you, you must not turn to them. The world may turn to God's way. The people around you may turn to God's way. But God looks at us and says, You just make sure you do not turn to them. Do not conform. Do not bow down when everyone else does. Verse 20 goes on to say, I'm with you to save you and deliver you. So may we, like Mordecai, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like people of faith for many generations, may we stand boldly with God and trust that He's going to take care of all the details. Tonight, if you're not living for God, we'd love to pray with you, talk with you. Don't stay where you're at.
the stakes are too high. Uh, eternity is too real. Uh, faith is too important. And so if we can pray for you tonight, we'd love to do that. Maybe it's a prayer for boldness. Maybe it's a prayer to renew your commitment to God. Maybe it's a prayer to put God back where He needs to be in your life. Uh, we'd love to pray for you tonight if that's your desire. Or maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you're ready to say, I'm going to stand with God in my life and trust His forgiveness and His salvation. If we can help you in any way tonight, you're invited to come to the front now while we stand and while we sing.